From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Dr. David Rothschild is an economist with Microsoft R&D and he is standing by. Not sure if David is from the Rothschild banking dynasty. Uh, I'll ask. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, even if he's not, it's cool to have him uh, with us. We're very excited. Anyway, David Rothschild and PredictWise has come up with a system of data collection and analysis that can be used as a prediction tool. And uh, so we'll discuss the U.S. presidential election. Obviously, that's something that many people are um, interested in uh, predicting and betting on and, and so forth. So we'll... Uh, We'll dive into that in mere moments. In, me, in the meantime, we have our good friend Ian Robertson on the other side of the glass, twisting dials and knobs and helping to fly this ship into the evening and straight on till morning. And remote viewer story producer Albert Venzel is here running our Hangout on Air. And uh, if you'd like to stream this radio program live on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R, E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top or near the top of the feed and find the tweet containing the HOA link. And you just click on it and voila, you're watching a radio program stream live on YouTube. Uh, just a, a brief programming note next week on the program, the legendary Jim Mars will be returning to the program to help us uh, commemorate a very somber occasion, the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And uh, speaking of 9-11, it's uh, just one more week, one more week, and it's here, your last week to order tickets in advance uh, for my exclusive live event, Where Did the Towers Go?, featuring Dr. Judy Wood, a Strange Planet Productions and Conspiracy Culture presentation, Where Did the Towers Go?, Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11, that's Sunday, September the 11th. Next week, from 1 to 4 p.m., 1 to 4 p.m. at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium here in Toronto. Tickets are $20 in advance, so get them now because you'll pay $30 at the door. Uh, to order online, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca, live events page at strangeplanet.ca, or you can visit uh, conspiracyculture.com. Where Did the Towers Go? Dr. Judy Wood, Sunday, September the 11th, here in Toronto. Hope to see you there. Uh, my guest and I are about to discuss uh, pioneering academic peer-reviewed research into prediction markets, uh, along with polling and online social media data that gives meaningful results. We're going to get into the upcoming events, uh, including who will be the next president of the United States, but we can also talk World Series for all you ball fans. I uh, would be very interested to know what the handicap is on my Toronto Blue Jays and uh, perhaps the Chicago Cubbies. Hey, they're slightly overdue. They haven't won a World Series since 1908. That's the year Leo Tolstoy died, for those of you keeping score. Dr. David Rothschild is an economist at Microsoft Research in New York City. He has a Ph.D. in Applied Economics from the Wharton School of Business. Hmm, the Wharton School. Who else attended there? Hmm. Oh, yes, Mr. Trump. Uh, that's at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. His primary body of work is on forecasting and understanding public interest and sentiment. 
Related work examines how the public absorbs information. He writes extensively in both the academic and popular press on polling, prediction markets, social media and online data, and predictions of upcoming events. Most of his popular work has focused on predicting elections and on econ- uh, and an economist take on public policy. After joining Microsoft in 2012, he has been building prediction and sentiment models and organizing novel experimental polling and prediction games. This work has been utilized by Bing, uh, Cortana, and Xbox. And he correctly predicted 50 of 51 electoral college outcomes in February of 2012, average of 20 of 24 Oscars from 2013 to 2015, and 15 of 15 knockout games in the 2014 World Cup. Impressive. He's also a fellow at the Applied Statistics Center at Columbia and the Penn Program on Opinion Research and Election Studies. PredictWise aggregates, analyzes, creates predictions on politics, sports, finance, entertainment. They created PredictWise because they thought it would be interesting and informative for people to better understand the likelihood of certain major events occurring and to have that information presented in a manner that is easy to comprehend. Dr. David Rothschild, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, you study the collection of individual level data for predictions, aggregation of that data into prediction, and usage of predictions for politics, sports, finance, and entertainment. That's quite a mouthful. Explain that uh, in plain English, if you could. Uh, sure. So, I think a lot about uh, predictions, and then when I think about predictions, I think of them as a type of market intelligence. It's something that people want to know about an upcoming event in order to do something about it. And so I think a lot about how people provide information that will ultimately find useful for it. And it goes down to the individual. It goes to them answering poll questions or uh, corresponding in a market or providing uh, some sort of opinion in social media data or more passively It involves the actions of people, whether or not they buy a particular product or whether or not uh, some event occurs that people are part of. And the kind of step that you go after that is to say, how do I aggregate that into uh, the prediction about what's going to happen? And the next step after that is thinking, uh, well, now that people have this uh, timely and flexible and hopefully accurate prediction, how do people actually use that? And actually, a lot of times they don't. So a lot of the most cutting-edge work that you're thinking of as far as big data goes, uh, it involves data collection. And then occasionally people turn that into something that is uh, market intelligence. And even rarer do people actually use all of this uh, big data that we've been collecting that has been turned into market intelligence to actually make business decisions much differently than we made business decisions a generation or two ago. So, and so that's the process I think about every day. Right. Oh, before I forget, uh, are you related to the Rothschild banking dynasty? Uh, no, no <laughs> okay. not in any way. You, you know I had to ask that question. Do you get asked that a lot, by the way? Um, uh, very rarely, um, <laughs> okay. to be honest. I get, I get a lot of Twitter trolls who, uh, who ask about it, but otherwise in person or on the phone a lot less often. All right. Not trolling, just, you know, it's, uh, yeah. just an interesting name. No All right. In an interesting lineage. Now, um, how is what you dif- do different than, for example, uh, by polling, whether we're talking about an online poll or, where we're, or whether we're mm-hmm. talking about, 
the telephone, direct uh, or even robocall polling? How is it different? How do you collect your data? Yeah, so for one thing, I'd say that I a lot of stuff I'll talk about tonight, regardless of, of where, where regarding where you want to go, I could talk to you about uh, you know unique data collection. A lot of the unique data collection that I do focus on uh, is in more advanced techniques. So thinking about not as much about traditional polling with telephones and and uh, random and representative groups, but saying what's going to happen next. So I work with a lot of polling companies over how does online polling work? How do uh, samples of people who have clearly uh, opted in to answer these questions, they're not random, they're not representative, uh, such as you know people who answer internet polls on the front of websites or people who uh, log on to internet panels that collect people over time. What's the analytics that we need to do to overcome the, the obvious non-representation of those users? And then when it comes to more found data, less about the work that I'm doing to collect data, but more about just the data I love to, to play with and think about, I like to get into market data uh, that answers a lot of questions that polling tries to answer, uh, but it answers differently. So prediction markets are a big uh, big favorite of mine. These are markets where people are buying, selling uh, futures contracts on upcoming events, no different than contracts that people have to buy a barrel of oil in uh, you know, six months. Uh, but instead of forecasting how much they think that barrel of oil is going to cost in six months, uh, there's a contract out there that is worth $1. If Donald Trump gets sworn in as president in uh, January 20th, 2017, it's worth $0. If not, the price that people are willing to pay for that contract, and there's multiple variations of those contracts sold in markets around the world, uh, those are pretty telling uh, to this kind of subjective uh, probability that uh, the general population and, and the population of traders are are giving to uh, that possibility, that outcome occurring. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, and he is a, an economist with Microsoft Research and Development and PredictWise. Now, we should point out that this is uh, a tool or a resource uh, that is used by uh, news outlets like Fox and MSNBC and BuzzFeed and the Financial Times and, and Washington Post. Um, do other um, uh, pollsters utilize uh, your data, for example? I mean, do they use that to help them formulate their their, their polling data or their uh, their approach to a poll? It's a great question. So um, let me let me put it into two different ways. And and one thing I would say is that certainly a lot of the research that we have done into understanding uh, newer techniques in polling have reached. The polling community, and that's always very exciting for someone who's coming more from the academic side. Uh, for instance, uh, we I've done a lot of research on question design, and I focused on asking people this question: Who do you think is going to win the election? Rather than the traditional, who are you going to vote for in the upcoming election? I've proven that question is very useful; that it aggregates very nicely when done in, in a good manner. And so, a lot of major polling companies have incorporated that. Uh, Otherwise, other ways in which we've worked is that we've worked on new statistical methods for aggregating polling data, which a lot of the major polling companies have also employed, so that's great. Um, but there's another part which I think is trickier, um, and which is that we have predictions about what's going to happen, and we know that polling companies are very well aware of what those people who create forecasts are saying uh, when they create uh, their individual snapshots. And it's an open question as to whether or not our 
predictions actually influence uh, what pollsters come out with. There's a couple of different levers uh, that pollsters can play with when they get their raw polling data or even when they're thinking about who they're going to ask their poll to. And it's definitely one that we're always trying to study whether or not our forecasts may actually affect uh, the way that polls go out and are conducted and the answers that pollsters actually give. The concept, the worry is something called herding, which says that pollsters take out a random sample of people and that says Trump is up by six. They're like, ah, oh, man, I'm a little too nervous to print that. I see the predictions are saying Trump is less than likely uh, to win and they pull their data back in a way that makes it so that Trump is up by one or two or maybe even down. Does that happen? Uh, well, it's not overwhelming. Uh, the evidence looks to say that's pretty unlikely, but it's always something that we're looking out for. Well, it is interesting because if you look at, for example, the L.A. Times, and uh, the L.A. Times has Trump up by three, two, three points. Uh, he's been trending very slowly, but up. And uh, even among the African-American vote, uh, L.A. Times uh, reported Trump at 14 percent nationally when the rest of the uh, the polls were saying Trump was somewhere around anywhere from zero, maybe one, two, three percent, certainly the low single digits. Such disparity. We had a recent Ipsos uh, poll, uh, which, you know, is is a pretty credible poll. They have Trump up in Wisconsin. They have him up even in Maine, New Hampshire, Michigan, uh, which is totally out of line with, with other polls. So, you know, the polling is all over the place. Maybe we can uh, address a little bit of that as well when we come back. And then we will get to the crux of the matter. Predict-wise, with Dr. David Rothschild, who is he predicting? Or what does the data, not his prediction, but what does the data say? Who will be the next president of the United States? We'll find out when we come back. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, economist at Microsoft Research and Development. And the uh, the website for PredictWise is PredictWise.com. PredictWise.com. Uh, All right, so let's cut to the quick. What uh, What is the, uh, the Republican nominee's chances at uh, winning the White House, David? The Republican nominee, Donald Trump, is at about 25 percent, uh, with Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, at about 75 percent. And this is an interesting thing to think about, to say, what does that mean? Um, well, on one side, it is incredibly high probability of victory, uh, 75 percent for the Democratic nominee uh, before Labor Day. Generally, historically, people don't pay that much attention uh, to elections prior to Labor Day. That's the old saying. Uh, but, of course, not truly the case for, for a lot of people in America at this point, though still a surprising amount of people aren't obsessed as probably uh, many of the people you and I know. Um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, Clinton had been flirting with a much higher numbers. Uh, the, rice, the race has uh, tightened a little bit. The polls have tightened uh, a lot uh, over the last uh, few uh, week, week and a half. Um, and so uh, this is a non-negligible probability that Donald Trump is the next president of the United States. So about 25 percent odds uh, for him yeah. making uh, yeah. being successful, winning the White House. Now, if one were to simply look, uh, then, and, you know, the national polls don't tell the story because you have to go state by state. They each um, have an allotted number of uh, electoral college votes, depending on how many 
um, congressmen they have or House representatives. Uh, so if you look at the Electoral College map, it's pretty clear Hillary has a much uh, a much clearer road to the White House. Uh, there's no margin of error for Trump. He has to win all of the states that Mitt Romney won in 2012 and then steal a couple of the, you know, from the big red wall, the, the, uh, whether it, and, and then also the swing states, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, North, uh, uh, North Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. He, I mean, he, there's no margin of error for him. However, um, as you mentioned, the, the polls are tightening. Even, uh, Ipsos, a pretty credible poll, now has Trump uh, within the margin of error in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. So, uh, I mean, what do we what do we take from that? I mean, is it close? Is it not close? Uh, well, these, you brought up like 40 questions in the last few seconds. So let me see how many of those <laughs> I can get through. I do that okay. sometimes. The, the first thing I can say is, is look, um, uh, the race sounds a lot like it sounded like in 2012. In 2012, we were talking about the Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, needing to carry Florida, Ohio, and Virginia, and that enough small states would probably follow should he carry those three states. And he ended up winning uh, none of those, obviously, um, but holding on to everything kind of harder than that, uh, North Carolina being the next swing state in line. Donald Trump needs to win Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has kind of leapfrogged Virginia this year as being something that is actually slightly easier for him to win due to demographic uh, considerations, uh, the Latino population in Virginia versus uh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and just all sorts of ways in which he's connecting to different people. It's going to be more likely, if he can win, that he can ask to do it by winning Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Now, uh, the second point I'd say is that uh, you talked about uh, the Ipsos poll, and you talked previously before the break about the USC poll. Uh, the USC poll is fascinating. Uh, I don't know how technical your crowd wants to get on this, but the USC poll is a panel. It's a very small group of people. They're polling from about 5,000 people, and they're polling 400 people a day. That's a lot, and it's very repetitive. But uh, they have been several points closer to Donald Trump the entire time, and what I will say is that they're doing some techniques which are a little questionable about how they're essentially weighing this group, non-representative group of people to the general population, including weighing them by their 2012 vote. And let me tell you this, people have a very hazy recollection of who they voted for uh, four years ago. Uh, and it changes a lot about how they feel about the guy who won and the guy who lost. Is that true? Um, I, I and, find that hard to believe, David, oh yeah. that people can't remember who they voted for. Well, I, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek when I say that. Okay. People, some people don't remember who they vote for, and some people change who they say they voted for. And so the best example I can give you is that there is some polling done in uh, June and July of 2009. I can't remember the exact numbers, uh, but basically they asked people who they voted for, and they got something like 70 to 80 percent of people saying they voted for Obama. Obama had huge popularity coming off his victory. People want to say they voted for the winner. And, and this also fits in another well-known pattern, which is that if you ask people if they voted, uh, whereas about 60 percent of the adult population uh, eligible to vote votes, uh, roughly 80 percent will claim they voted right after the election. So uh, people will answer in a way that they deem 
socially desirable. Exactly. Uh, when they answer polls. Well, that, and which harkens back to right the... to your next point, yeah. which is uh, on the Ipsos poll. Okay. Um, so, uh, so which is to say that uh, what we have seen is that Donald Trump does better on online polls versus telephone polls. Uh, this was about a three or four point difference during the primary, uh, where he was simply doing better on places where someone talked to the internet rather than talked to a human being. And the assumption is, is that while there's a lot, a lot of other stuff tied up into it, uh, because internet polls have a different group of people, it's a different sample, as well as being a different way of contacting them. There is this worry about social desirability bias, which says that people may be embarrassed to tell a human being they're voting for Trump, but they feel more comfortable telling the Internet they're voting for Trump. Exactly. Ipsos is an Internet-based poll. It has been leaning more towards Trump, and Internet polls in general have been leaning a little more towards Trump. It's been a little tighter than general, closer to about one to two percentage points. And so what I'll say about that is that definitely could be a thing. But at this point, it's still not enough of a thing that even if it was true, it doesn't necessarily cover as much ground as Mr. Trump needs to cover. Um, but it definitely is something that could end up helping him a little bit. Now, there is a, a flip to this, which is a worry, which says that Donald Trump could outperform the polls if there's this social desirability bias where people are afraid to poll for him. But the flip of that is that if people are afraid to tell people they're voting for him, that does not do well for him as far as spreading the word, as far as convincing other people to vote for him, as far as people donating, as far as people volunteering their time, Interesting as point. far as people actually showing up at the polls on Election Day. Uh, if they're too embarrassed to tell people about their support, that may be a problem uh, come Election Day uh, for actually uh, votes. We mentioned the, the social desirability, and people refer to the Bradley effect. And back in the early 80s, yeah. L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley was running for governor. He was a, he's an African-American, or was. I'm not sure if Mr. Bradley is still with us. But he was ahead in the polls going into the gubernatorial election, but then ended up losing, which was a real head-scratcher, because all the polls indicated that Tom Bradley was going to win. And again, that was the social desirability bias. People, when they were polled on the phone, I suppose you know, wanted to be socially desirable. And so they said, yes, I am voting for Tom Bradley. Some have said that there's no evidence of a Bradley effect or a social desirability bias in this election. But you're saying perhaps there is. If anything, I would say, let's be clear, if it exists, it's very minimal at this point. And there's also a key part, which I, I, I need to add here, which is to say that while Trump did better in the online polls than the telephone polls in the primary the primary actually described his actual outcome more accurately, which is to say the online polls actually overshot his support. So there is a certain difference. It could be driven by the sample. It could be driven by the social desirability bias being shown in the way that people contact it. There's a slight difference, but it's much more negligible in the general election than it is in the primary election. As I said, even if it exists right now, it would be way too small if the election were held today, the polling is, is way too strong in Hillary Clinton's favor to expect an error that large to carry Trump to victory should the election be held today. With, of course, this 25 percent uncertainty really is pending on 
uh, what happens between now and election day, what happens in the next 60 days. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, and it's predictwise.com, predictwise.com. It's interesting that the handicapping here, 25% Trump, 75% likelihood that Hillary will win. It's consistent with the 75% prediction made by PredictWise that Brexit would fail during the last week. And yet we know what happened there. Brexit went on to win. Let's talk about that for a moment. What happened there? It's a great question. And so let me make a few distinctions between Brexit and the election uh, in the U.S. first, which is to say that... uh, the uncertainty that we were seeing going into Brexit, uh, that was a, a, a kind of different uncertainty in the sense that it was wholly based on there just isn't that much information. It's Election Day. Uh, a lot of the information that we do have is very close. It's almost like you're rolling a four-sided die and three sides says remain and one side says leave. What we're looking at here is if the election were held today uh, with the mass amount more information we have, uh, the history of elections like this versus the history of elections like Brexit, the uh, polling combined with markets, combined with the fundamental predictions that we know how to make, uh, says that the election we're held today, Hillary Clinton would be uh, about 99% to win the election today. Uh, this uncertainty is really about uh, what will happen between now and Election Day. Is accounting for the possibility uh, that something happens that makes uh, Donald Trump stronger. An October surprise. A, a problem. What? Like an October surprise. Uh, uh, another WikiLeaks drop. Surprise. Yeah. Something something drops that really changes the dynamics. If the dynamics continue as they were, as they are right now, uh, Clinton is an incredibly strong position. Uh, and the other thing which I would say is that, is, is that look, uh, Brexit was uh, trending uh, heavily towards leave up until uh, the about the last 24 to 48 hours in the polling data. Um, the markets uh, looked at the history of these types of sovereignty elections and said generally there's a big push towards uh, remain, towards stability, towards the end. There's a lot of undecided voters who generally break towards stability. That was the gamble that the markets were making. It proved not to pan out, of course. Um, Donald Trump at this point is not leading in the polls and the markets are not then kind of making a, a statement against that. Um, he is down um, and he is down by, by quite a lot for this uh, time of the cycle. And so I would say that in many ways, uh, numbers are similar, but it's because we're this far out. Um, and it's definitely uh, a different type of uncertainty uh, that we faced than during what we faced during the Brexit. Well, and the the other thing that's been pointed out, and you, I think it was you that, that, that mentioned this uh, in, an, in an article, that with Brexit, a lot of the traders, those people obviously that would be most affected uh, in terms of a Brexit uh, or a leave vote, they had priced that in uh, to the equation. So in other words, there is almost a, uh, you wouldn't call it a social desirability bias, but there is a bias there uh, that that that, uh, you know, people are going to be adversely affected by this, and so that's going to be reflected in... I mean, do I have that right? Is, is, does that make sense? It is, look, the, 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 it's a tricky point, and I hope your, your listeners get this, um, but we looked. I looked at this Brexit pricing prior, and I knew there was a problem, and, we, and I talked about this in the blog post, which is to say, uh, if Brexit passes, 
um, everyone knows that the pound is going to be worth about 10 percentage points less. And so if people are betting on Brexit to pass, um, they know that the return they're going to get on that is not a pound for a pound. It's going to be 90 pence on a pound because ultimately they're going to get paid off. They're going to get paid off in a currency that's now worth less money. Uh, that is definitely uh, a very interesting question. It definitely uh, was unique uh, outcome in which we knew that that was uh, such a clear effect. Uh, furthermore, we also know that pretty much everyone who trades regularly uh, had a large vested interest in Brexit not occurring uh, because very few people were invested in a sort of way in which would pay off because essentially, again, if you were invested in Britain at all, uh, at least in the short run, um, they were going to lose money. And so uh, that is very different uh, than most situations, including Trump versus Clinton, where there are multiple uh, uh, people with tons of money who are on both sides. Exactly. And the, the smart exactly. money can come in and sweep up. You have a market where essentially everyone uh, is essentially rooting for one side. So even if they're betting against it, <clears throat> uh, there's no way that they're actually long Brexit in their overall portfolio. And okay. So, got to jump in here, Dave. Got to take a, a uh, forgive me. Got to take a break. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dr. David Rothschild is with us, economist at Microsoft R&D, and uh, the website is predictwise.com, predictwise.com. And uh, just to reiterate, the odds in terms of the, uh, the presidential election for Trump to take the White House is sitting at about 25%, so 75% for Hillary. And you're saying, uh, David, that that takes into account the potential for an October surprise, another WikiLeaks scandal about Hillary, or perhaps even, I don't know, calls for another indictment on something unrelated to the to the email scandal. But you've taken that into account already. You've baked that into the equation, correct? Definitely. So following uh, market data, I think that the markets have done a great job in the past, and I assume that they're doing so going forward in thinking about not just the polling data, not just kind of the fundamentals that we know about campaigns and the way they go, uh, but also uh, the potential for things to happen, whether or not is the potential uh, for a strong debate to make a difference, uh, like we saw the in the first debate in 2012 where Romney came roaring back against Obama during the first debate, uh, or the potential for other types of surprises, other types of blunders or miscues or, or great strategies. And they're taking into account both the possibility of an October surprise and, of course, another difference here that political scientists and economists alike are fascinating about is what happens with the giant differential in spending on both advertising and get out the vote campaigns down the stretch. Right now, uh, Clinton is poised to have a fairly large advantage. Uh, she has a much larger field game, as it were, going out to GOTV, and that's something that the, the markets will also be following as a way for her to cement the lead uh, should she have that going into October. What about, and I don't know how you measure this, and a lot of this is, uh, I think you refer to it as idiosyncratic data, because let's face it, human behavior can be, well, I would say tricky to predict, but that's what you're in the business of, is predicting that human behavior. Um, but when I look at, for example, the um, the rallies, the uh, the Trump rallies, those people seem very energized and enthusiastic 
and you don't get that sense from from Hillary supporters. A lot of it is very big, you know, it, it's kind of they're holding their nose, and we all know about the the whole Bernie Sanders uh, uh, situation, and a lot of his supporters are kind of holding their nose uh, when it comes to supporting Hillary. I mean, the idea then that Trump's supporters, because they're more enthusiastic, would more likely show up to vote than Hillary's supporters on voting day. What do you think of that? I think that it's important to think about the U.S. process uh, as a kind of pyramid of being involved. Uh, At the top, you have people who donate all that money. Uh, That's a huge investment. You have kind of just below that, you have tons of people who volunteer for campaigns or show up at rallies or physically take time out to make things happen. Uh, but what you have to remember is, is that all of those people are very, very small percentage of the electorate. Uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, as you mentioned, had a great enthusiasm. He had a lot of people come out to these rallies. I think I heard a number upwards of a million people overall came out to his rallies. Uh, but that is still uh, well less than 1% of the people that we expect to vote in the 2016 general election. And so... Uh, the answer is that it, it could translate into money, it could translate into volunteer support, uh, and it certainly can mean that there's a core group of people that are enthusiastic. Uh, but the vast majority of voters will never engage in the process beyond voting. And what we do see is, is that uh, all of these metrics as far as engagement, um, as far as uh, how much people say they're enthusiastic, ultimately does not change the electric very much, which is a very stable thing from election to election. So it's possible that it could translate to something for him. But what I would say is this, is that uh, there has been uh, 54% of the electorate has been women and 46% has been male uh, for over six straight elections, regardless of who's been running and what's been going on. Uh, the marginal demographics of the voters have been very stable, um, and things can shift, and it, it will shift, uh, but generally it shifts in very predictable ways and quite small from election to election. All right, and we're heading into a break, and we'll, I'll, I'll ask you this question. I may have to jump in, and we can continue after the break, but in 2012, I had read where uh, um, Romney, ha- uh, the difference in that election was about 700,000 votes spread over five states. So if if Trump can bring new people into the tent, independents, uh, undecideds, or people who had never even voted before, unregistered, uh, if he can, and I think this speaks to the ground game, obviously, but if he can get 700,000 um, people to register across, you know, five states, that could be the difference, perhaps. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back and I'll ask you about that. Then we'll move on to other uh, other matters. PredictWise isn't just about uh, the President of the United States. Uh, they also talk about entertainment. And I see on the website, PredictWise.com, uh, there's a page there dedicated to Game of Thrones. What's that all about? We'll come back and discuss. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dr. David Rothschild is with us. PredictWise.com. Uh, PredictWise.com. And, uh, you know, David, I'm having a senior's moment. I, what, I was just before the break, I asked you something, and now it is gone. Where, where, 
I was going to ask you about the game of... That's the 2012 election. Yes, thank you. You you. brought up a good point, and let me say two things on it. Number one is that Donald Trump is, at this point, underperforming uh, Romney in most places. So the question was, Romney came close, reasonably close. He had to flip several hundred thousand votes very strategically, and he would have carried the election. That is true. But let's say, first of all, he is underperforming. But I think the second point, which you actually answered yourself as you were going to break, which is to say it takes a lot of data and a really strong ground game as well as targeted advertising to say, I can just nail 750,000 strategically placed voters and flip those people in a certain way, um, and that will do the difference uh, in the election. And Donald Trump is, at this point, uh, very far behind in their ground game, just by things like the number of offices that have been open. We know that uh, there was an article just a few days ago where I think it was in the Washington Post, and they showed that there's one office or two offices in a lot of the major swing states where Hillary Clinton was in the 30s and 40s, the number of offices. And there is a concerted effort to make voting relatively hard in the U.S. In a lot of places, you still need to vote on Election Day, um, and that Election Day is a work day. It's a Tuesday. So for a lot of people, it is a commitment to take a few minutes to, if you're in a more urban area, maybe a few hours out of your day in order to vote. And so the ground game is what really motivates people to overcome that cost, to help them actually get to the polls and all sorts of different ways to remind them. If it's a question of strategically getting people out there, it looks like the Clinton campaign is doing a pretty widespread job right now. And there's not much evidence, at least externally, that the Trump campaign is doing as good a job. A potential October surprise, and again, we're into speculation here, but what about a health crisis? What if, for example, people were to see Hillary stumble again on a plane, or what if there's some sort of an issue related to her concussion in, in 2012? Well, look, I mean, you should be looking at this on both sides. Both candidates are relatively old. Donald Trump himself would be the oldest person to ever assume the presidency if he were to win this election. So Hillary Clinton has released pretty much the standard package of medical records. I'm forgetting the exact number. I believe she's 68 years old. Yes, she um, is, yeah. Donald Trump is uh, 70 years old. Donald Trump's letter from his doctor, we'll say, was a little bizarre and hasn't released the standard battery of tests and, and reports. And so I would say that it's interesting that the Trump campaign is pushing the health issue when there's no reason to believe that he is not a very virile and healthy 70-year-old man, but that is also a somewhat of a concern. Look, I'll take a step back and say, uh, you know, I'm 36 years old and I can't pull the kind of hours I used to have. This is a this is a, a very demanding job, and it is amazing to step back and say, look, that we have two uh, people of that age pushing for the job. More important, I think, is something to remember. Uh, very, very few voters actually swing in U.S. elections, uh, especially if you get to October. Uh, it is really hard to move people. And most people who move, when you look at the raw data, they move from the fence saying that they're not sure if they're going to vote for anyone or they're going to vote for other or something like that to a major party candidate. So um, if Clinton is over 50 percent in the polls, and she's flirting with that. She's around 47, 
or percent or so, if she could push over 50%, it is really hard to move downwards. Most of the things that uh, change, uh, they do because both people are moving up, but they're moving up at a different rate as people start joining the ranks of the two major party candidates. So uh, it really should be uh, an early September surprise if Donald Trump really wants to make it work uh, late uh, or mid-October, just maybe too late. Right. Okay. And just uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but even Bill Clinton, uh, you know, said that or predicted that Hillary's health would be an issue. Uh, however, um, sometimes I get the sense he's almost trying to derail her her campaign. However, uh, let's move on to other matters. And and um, the mighty Aphrodite and I, my wife, we uh, we started watching. We're a couple seasons behind, but we started watching Game of Thrones. And predict wise isn't just about presidential elections. You also you've you've made uh, you've had some incredible accuracies when accuracy when it comes to predicting uh, Os- the Oscars. Uh, but what's going on with Game of Thrones? What do you, what, what's the prediction there? What's all that? What's that all about? So in Game of Thrones, um, you know, this is, is not something in which normally I would, I'd like to have a, a nice model to back up what we're doing. There's not a, a great history of outcomes I could look at uh, with the question at hand, which is who is ultimately going to be ruling Westeros at the end of the series. Um, so we, we skip right past that and I go right to what are what are people actually betting on the open market? So uh, it's a little more obscure um, but I've found several locations around the world where you can actually place wagers on the ruler of Westeros at the end of the series. And I try to translate to the best of my ability uh, those uh, wagers uh, where I can find them, basically looking for uh, the uh, cheapest marginal price that you could buy for uh, different possible outcomes. And uh, not surprising – well, actually, I, I don't know if you want to know if you're a few seasons behind – yeah, um, no, but, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I do not. But um, but look, uh, there's a, there's definitely been a lot of movement over the last few seasons. It's been interesting to see, um, and it's one of those really weird predictions because there's somebody who knows the answer and just hasn't told us, or maybe no one, maybe hasn't decided yet. We don't know that. But um, you know, where a lot of things or most things that we predict um, are in the realm of the. A truly unknown. There's still there's still die to be cast to see where it goes. Uh, here is a case in which uh, the answer is no, but similar to the Oscars and other entertainment outcomes that we try to follow, where maybe the answer is already known but hasn't been revealed, and it's definitely a, a fun thing to follow. And it's something which I intend to add a lot more over uh, in the coming months as I as I add in more uh, entertainment, sports, and politics onto the site. Uh, but when you're talking about a TV show, which is the, the ultimate, I mean, the outcome is determined by the writers and the producers and so forth. Yeah. So what you're gauging is, you know, in the prediction market, are those people that watch the show and are, and are talking about it online and, and so forth or betting on it. But how does that in any way foretell what's in the writers or the producer's mind? Look, it, it's really the crowd's wisdom on the matter. And so there's a lot of people who watch these shows a lot closer than I they're looking for clues constantly and what is in the mind of the writer and the mind of the uh, producers on HBO. And uh, basically, this is the aggregation of their collective wisdom, which in some ways falls short of the truth, of course. And an omnipresent God will know the true answer to this because they know that there's a few people out there who have already made up their mind. There's no ambiguity in that. But it definitely is interesting in this matter, but in other matters, to know what does the crowd think, even if it's not the 
ground truth, uh, even if it's not necessarily reading it to the minds of those people who know the answers. It's the best estimate of the collective wisdom we see out there. You could go and scour blogs day in and day out, and this is basically doing that for you. If the question at hand is who's going to rule Westeros at the end of the day, this, I would say, is the best approximation of scouring all of the span wisdom out there and putting it all together and putting a point estimate on it. And herein lies then the enormous not potential, but the enormous upside for PredictWise for things like marketing, where it is all about, you know, preference, uh, consumer preference and so forth. That's definitely uh, a good point and definitely uh, it's something I definitely agree with. And to say that, uh, you know, a lot of this work is definitely teaches me how the crowd works. And as we talked about in the beginning, uh, how the crowd works in formulating their numbers, then what I could do with those numbers to predict outcomes. But you're exactly right. Uh, the wheelhouse is definitely, in a sense, politics, where ultimately there is a product out there and people are making decisions. It does great for box office predictions. Uh, and, of course, any other marketing question, where ultimately the crowd who is providing me the data is also uh, the ultimate arbitrator of the truth. Uh, one final question. A huge baseball fan. We're sitting here in Toronto, of course, uh, and um, hoping and praying uh, for a positive outcome for our Blue Jays uh, this year. Uh, what does PredictWise have to say about uh, the Blue Jays' chances of winning the World Series? Well, the Blue Jays are looking pretty decent for the team that they have in the sense that they are at 7% right now uh, to win the World Series. Look, the Cubs and the Nationals are historically awesome teams this year. Yes, they are. And uh, I don't think most people are going to deny that. And the Cubs' number right now is at 25%, which is crazy. The same with the Nationals, who both have commanding leads in the National League Central and National League East, respectively. But that being said, someone is going to make it out of the AL, and whoever makes it out of the AL is going to have a shot. And the most likely team to make out of the AL is the Rangers coming out of the West. Yes, they're tough. Um, the Blue Jays are, are, are the next best team, right up there with the, the Red Sox and Indians. And, and what I can say to give hope to everyone is to say, look, these numbers are tricky to read because essentially they're conditional on looking at how the playoffs play out. And so any given team uh, in uh, the West of the NBA last year uh, had a somewhat lower probability of winning than the, the Cavaliers, who ultimately won, because we knew the Cavaliers were going to make it to the finals because they simply had no other teams in the East to play against. Uh, this year you have, uh, in baseball, an interesting scenario where the two far and away best teams, they need to beat each other. And so uh, it's kind of a tricky thing to think through, but ultimately only one of those two teams can make it out of the NL. And so... Whoever makes it out of the AL just has to beat one of them. And so that's a, that's a little, little nice advantage they get there in the way the leagues are broken up. And so uh, anything is possible, though it's still quite a long shot for any given team outside of Chicago and uh, Washington. Even if, uh, we're just almost done here, but even if a John Lester and a Chris Bryant and a, and a Jake Arrieta go down, uh, I mean, you've already, again, you've just kind of a yes or no, you've baked that into the equation as well? It baked that into the equation, but... You know, in baseball, more than other sports, there's liable to be uh, giant jumps uh, when injuries happen. Um, in this, you know, if a QB goes down in football or a star player goes down in basketball, uh, baseball has their pitchers that can make a huge difference. And uh, injuries uh, happen or don't happen will make uh, big jumps, especially in those standings for the AL East where you have still uh, a reasonably tight 
area. Yeah, David, um, I got to jump in and, and cut wild it. Card. Uh, is uh, is not like it used to be. You need to win that league, uh, win the division, in order to, to skip ahead and not play this one-game playoff. David, I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. David Rothschild, PredictWise.com. All right, back with more. Always say hello on Twitter at uh, Richard Serrett. Check out the website, strangeplanet.ca, and follow the truth.